In 2021, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report that outlined how climate change is now widespread, rapid, and intensifying. These days, we're seeing intense droughts, storms, heat waves, rising sea levels, and more. And these events are impacting people's lives, from access to resources to their safety and health. One question that I personally grapple with, and I think many other travelers do too, is whether or not travel is an unnecessary privilege that is worsening our climate situation. Is it an unfortunate truth that we should all be trying to travel more locally to reduce our impact? Or is there a way to strike a balance between travel and sustainability? Today, Dr. Daniel Scott is going to help us unpack these difficult questions. He is a university research chair in climate and society in the geography and environmental management, as well as the director of the Interdisciplinary Center on Climate Change at the University of Waterloo here in Ontario. But before we dive in, Katie, I just have to tell you something. Oh, no. I listen to this podcast called Unexplainable. And they were talking about what would happen if an asteroid were going to hit Earth. And they interview the scientist and they ask the scientist what would happen. And the scientist said that NASA this year is planning to practice booping an asteroid to change its course. They're going <gasps> to fly a massive spaceship into an asteroid like out in space somewhere and try to change the direction it's going <laughs> so that if an asteroid is coming to earth they can just boop i i love that when you said they're gonna try and boop an asteroid i immediately knew what you were like i got a perfect visual of booping the asteroid like i knew exactly okay but they were saying this when they do it in 2022 it's gonna be interesting because it's never been done before so they they don't actually know what will happen i don't know if they can boop it i think they can intend on booping it but it might be a crap they're gonna fly the spaceship into it so fast like faster than you can even imagine i don't i don't know if i believe in it i'm sorry <laughs> i trust you scientists but i don't know if i believe in this expedition okay so that's what's been going on in my brain this week yes um i know you wanted to talk about something <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably more related to what this podcast is about, which is travel. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, I'm so glad you shared that fun bit of news with me because I'm very excited about it. But okay. So I have been itching to talk about this with you. So I just started rewatching The Amazing Race. And I've only ever seen like a couple seasons, but we started with season one to see like where the show started and oof, we got stuff to talk about. Okay, so have you seen The Amazing Race? Yes, Katie, I have applied to be on that show multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> of course you have. Of course you have. <laughs> okay, so I'll throw it out there for context. The Amazing Race is a reality TV show that consists of teams racing around the world with different clues leading them across various countries and cities uh, all the way to the end where they win, what, like a million dollars or something like that. So setting the stage... Season one, episode seven, they race from Italy to India. And as soon as I see them read the ticket that they're going from Italy to India, I go, oh, no, 
culture shock is going to be intense. <laughs> and so I'm watching, I'm watching, and I it was. And there was this one team in particular that was a mother-daughter team, and they completely clammed up. It was brutal. So, so they had to go to the red market, which is a we already know India to be an extremely highly populated place. This is just an outdoor market that was very, very busy. And they had to they had to hop on like a bike sort of like rickshaw thing. Oh, and a bicycle then get, rickshaw, yeah. Yeah. And then bike through the market to find a clue. Oh uh, and they were trying to ask people for advice on where to go and for directions and stuff like that. And this mom of this team is just completely shuts down. She stops talking. She's just like basically in the fetal position on this bike. <laughs> and she's like, nearly in tears and then it then she finally makes it out she's the last team to get out they she reunites with her daughter and there's like all these people trying to help them to get to the next phase and and the young woman on this team is literally calling them all stupid because they can't help her or respond in english it was actually wild and like deeply concerning and like saddening to watch this episode and how this team reacted to locals in India. So three thoughts I have to share with you and I want to hear what you think. Uh, one, as much as I want to rip on these contestants about how poorly they treated everybody there, I had to remember watching this that in context, they're on a a pilot TV show, the first time this TV show has ever been done, so they have no idea what to expect. And we preach on this show all the time about doing your research before you go to a country so that you can be mindful. And these contestants have no opportunity to do any research. So like, what do you think, Erin? Is there problematic reaction warranted? Like, what do you think about that? Well, I think the design of the show is in part to get those reactions out of people. That's kind of the whole point of the show. But I do think if I was going to go on the amazing race, although I don't know for sure which countries they're going to send me to, I can for sure prepare for culture shock just by like doing general reading or just, I think there's things you could do to like prepare yourself a little bit. And you know that they're going to send you to places that will be challenging. So they're almost always going to send you to India, I think. For every sure. Season. And I know they <laughs> often send people to China. They send you to places where it's going to be hard, especially with language, because that's like the crux of the show. That That's what makes the drama, <laughs> which yep, is kind totally. of why, like, in retrospect, I did always enjoy that show because I liked it because watching how the pairs interact with each other in these high stress situations is really fun. And I relate to a lot of that because I've been in those kinds of situations. Okay, so you're leading to me to one of my other thoughts, which is that The Amazing Race is a microwave test for your relationship. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It doesn't matter what relationship it is, couples, siblings, family, friends, some of the couples on this show were crumbling just crumbling oh, Katie. i watched this show for years a lot of for a lot of people like it ruined relationships the show because they would leave it and break up <laughs> and but, actually yeah. like 
spoilers for season one, but the couple that ends up in the final uh, is a couple who are separated parents. And they are in and out of resolving their relationship the entire time this show is happening. And then, I was, then they, it ends in their home city, like six blocks away from where their daughter is. And it's like this beautiful resolve. And then I look up the where are they now? Definitely divorced, <laughs> like remarried, <laughs> no longer together. <laughs> so sad. Yeah. I think the important thing to note too, though, is like, the show is kind of a pressure cooker. I read a lot about like how the show is produced when I was applying to be on it because I okay, needed to know, tell. obviously. So yes. the pressure cooker is the fact that you're in a foreign country, but they also don't let you sleep very much. It's similar to other like reality shows where you're just basically never comfortable. And so you haven't slept, you're often hungry, there's cameras around you all the time. So it's not just the fact that you're in a foreign country and have to do these like difficult challenges, like there's all these other factors that make it incredibly stressful. So in a way, like I can understand why people have these meltdowns that that are kind of inappropriate. Okay, so then my last thought that I was curious to hear about you from was about just the way that the I noticed the show produced their portrayal of India was very much focused on like impoverished people, kids begging for money that I'm like 99% sure they did not sign a release form to be on a TV show to a bunch of white Westerners. Like I was like kind of weary about how this TV show is portraying India and focusing on like a lot of negative aspects rather than like a lot of really great aspects. But like, I've never been to India. So what I saw on TV, I, I have no idea if it's real or if it's just over exaggerated or what. So I'm like curious what you think. Well, a lot of the shows produced. So it wouldn't surprise me if the kids had been placed there. Oh, really? Oh, for sure. Like a lot of the scenes that you see have been manufactured. I haven't watched the show in years and I haven't seen those early seasons. But I do know that even when I watched it like 10 years ago, I used to think they just really reduce every nation to these stereotypes. I feel kind of icky about that. It's funny you say that though, because as much as I want to wrap up this conversation and get into the episode... Honestly, it felt like they spend so little time in each country that you rarely get to even understand any context of the traditions and things that they're showcasing. Oh, for sure. It never felt like a stereotype to me because there was things like it was a one certain place where it's really popular for locals to like fly kites, for example. So I didn't notice stereotypes other than, well, I guess you're right, because then the one things that I did notice were like the drama that's happening, which mostly revolves around culture shock. So I guess it's like stereotypes through culture shock, in a sense. I guess they, they just, what they do is they present like little snippets of each culture in, like you're saying, a very rushed way where there's yeah. no meaningful engagement. And in the episodes that I saw, it was often like very stereotyped aspects of those cultures. So my last question for you then, Aaron, watching The Amazing Race and talking to you about it, I so badly just want to do a recap podcast with you about The Amazing Race. Oh my god! <laughs> so badly. That would actually be so fun. So if you're listening and you think you want to hear more of us talking about The Amazing Race, then 
let us know and maybe we'll do this in the summertime what's the next season erin there's like 30 seasons we can just watch seasons that already exist like maybe that's a fun thing that we can do in the summer or something during our off season yeah i'd be into that we should also interview someone who's been on the show. You just made me realize. Yeah, we 100% should. I kind of want to go and watch it now. Well, I'm really excited to chat with you. We have talked about issues like around sustainability on the podcast before but it's one of those things that we feel like we need to revisit every few months just because there's so much happening and it's like you could cover this from so many different angles to start could you just introduce yourself your work and your connection to the topic of climate change and tourism So I'm Daniel Scott. I'm a research chair and professor at the University of Waterloo. I'm also a a research fellow at the the School of Tourism and Hospitality um, at the University of Surrey in the UK. And I've worked in climate change and tourism or sustainable tourism more broadly for about 25 years now. I've led projects for the UN World Tourism Organization, World Bank, International Olympic Committee, um, European Travel Commission and others in the tourism space, um, all related to climate change and tourism. I'm curious to know, I mean, in your 25 years working in this field and on climate change, how have you seen the discussions around it evolving, especially as it pertains to tourism? For, for sure. Like it was the first, first international conference on climate change and tourism that the UNWTO held was in 2003. That was an entirely new concept to basically everybody in the room. There was myself and a few others who were coming from climate change, bringing the climate science to the industry and to, to the sector, um, but most of them didn't even have the sort of basic grasps other than what they would hear in the media as a citizen. So it wasn't part of tourism policy. It, they were really not thinking too much about it. And at the time, there was still a lot of, whether you call them doubters or denialists, that sort of language permeated. We still see much of it is is rhetoric. The industry is saying the right thing. So they showed up at Glasgow, they issued their declaration, but pledging something and delivering something are, are two fundamentally different things. And it's that side of the, the action side or a roadmap. How would you achieve these emission reductions? That's just utterly missing, unfortunately. So, so they're still at that stage of the awareness is there the the engagement is is getting much stronger but an action plan to actually deliver things is still what they're needing Mm -hmm. we're going to talk a bit more about awareness but i have one more off-the-cuff question how does the tourism part of your research relate to like your personal interest in tourism were you always a traveler like yeah so so i'm i'm a geographer um we like to see parts of the world and do field work and and all that one of those wonderful all the benefits of travel um and that's something i absolutely want people to engage in because there are real benefits to that that we can talk about and then as you study tourism one of the things that tourism sector does well is they hold conferences in really nice places so at times it's hard to say (laughs) no but many years ago i i did you know, I, I looked at my carbon footprint from work versus my carbon footprint for our entire family and, and my work footprint 
was double what my family footprint was. That was about 15 years ago. And since then, I've really had to, to take a close look and, and, and really rationalize where I travel to and is it going to make an impact? I think that general awareness about uh, the impact of climate change has been growing, at least like in my experience. I see it being discussed more openly amongst my community. But I know that climate change is affecting various industries in different ways. And it's been a while since we've talked on Alpaca My Bags about how travel is contributing to climate change. So I wanted to start with that. Could you give us an overview of the main ways that the tourism industry is contributing to the climate crisis? So that's that's an important question. And, and for the sector as a whole, globally, we did the first estimate for UNWTO in 2007, and it was about 5% of global CO2. A newer study with a different methodology has come out, and their estimate was 8%. It's in that sort of 5 to 8%. And to put that in a bit of context, if if tourism was there for a country, it would be in the top five. So it would be after China and the U.S. only. So so it's not a sector we can ignore. It's not a sector that policymakers and those who want to see the Paris Climate Agreement succeed, they can't overlook tourism. So number one source of emissions is is transportation, and within that, aviation or air travel. Again, that's getting 13 years ago now. Air travel was about 40% of that. So that may have creeped up even a little bit more since then. Over the last two years, of course, a lot of people put a pause on their travels. And, you know, I've seen lots of articles saying that this was really good for the climate crisis to have this, this sort of global pause on travel. And I'm curious from your perspective, if you think like this is just, you know, talk on the internet or if there was actually some truth to that. Yeah, there, there is a little bit. So the pandemic was devastating, certainly for air travel, and it shifted a lot of demand to domestic and, and that had ramifications too. We saw places, you know, coasts in England and national parks in Canada and things, just not able to handle those those extra people. But certainly in academic circles, there was this pause and let's rethink when we restart the economy, let's make sure we build back a more sustainable, a green tourism um, make sure that investment goes in there. That really hasn't translated. There are some good examples of it. And we're myself and Suzanne Beckin from New Zealand are writing a, a report for the OECD on exactly that question. How have the pandemic recovery investments in, in tourism, may, is it investing in a greener tourism or by and large, taking us back to where we were, and and all the almost all of the aviation or air tra- airline bailouts have not had the kind of strings attached that some would hope. Um, that being said, some do. KLM and in, in the Netherlands being one example that they would reduce absolute reduce their emissions, not just offset them. And New Zealand is one good example um, where they actually set up a commission that included scientists, policymakers, people from the industry to really look at the future of New Zealand tourism. How is it consistent with where the country wants to be in terms of achieving net zero because the the emissions related to aviation to get to the country before you do anything are are massive because people are coming largely from Europe and North America and places like that. I've seen some discussion in the Caribbean, a topic like beyond tourism. They're thinking it not just from a carbon or a climate perspective, but they recognize the vulnerability of tourism to disruption from a pandemic. We've seen this sort of start, restart, 
pull back new restrictions, another variant comes. And that might be with us for another couple of years. Those are some of the projections the aviation sector has, and, and I think countries, the medical community too. So they're they're looking at, well, you know, what else can our economy consist of? And there aren't a lot of great options, unfortunately, for some of these small island states. But at least, you know, they're asking that question, and how can we make this more sustainable as well as more reliable in an era of pandemics and climate change? I get the sense that aviation is probably one of the biggest contributors that we need to be looking at. And on that note, how do we shift away from relying on air travel so much? I mean, one one thing I think about is like even here in Canada, a better train system would be conducive to more people taking the train versus flying from Toronto to Montreal type thing. Uh, absolutely. I even hit the nail on the head for most places. Those of who have traveled in Europe or even China with the high-speed train networks are just amazing. You get urban center to urban center. In a place like Switzerland, you can get to the smallest village by a regional train and then a local train. And we just don't have that in Canada. Toronto doesn't have subway access to the airport. Is just, you know, and that's been talked about since the 1970s, for goodness sake. Canada doesn't have the same sort of population density that Europe and, and obviously China and the U.S. East Coast and things like that. So rail is, is, is a good option. Others are looking at convoys of autonomous buses or things like that could get here just as soon. One of the things that we've seen for, for rail, but subways as well as the nimbyism that just blocks that stuff up for decades while they're trying to, you know, cite these things. And on the climate file, we don't have that anymore. Like those decades are gone. You need to have it built and operating in 10, 15 years. And that's not our track record. So trains, I'd, I'd love, you know, and I always have to explain that to my European colleagues. We, we don't have that option. So then we have to look at, well, how do you change um, aviation? There are some really good technologies coming for short haul routes, porter flies, there are now electric, so in Vancouver, the pontoon, the, the Harbor Air, they have an electric aircraft that they're using. There's been one certified in Europe. I think it's like a 10-passenger one in a range of like 400 miles or something like that. So I think a Toronto-Ottawa by electric aircraft, certainly by the end of the century, for smaller ones, will be entirely doable. And so we'll have to look at, is that an option that technologically will get there faster just knowing our problems and the cost of high-speed rail. So I think Canadian decision-makers have to look at those different options. And that's what France has done. They've said as part of their bailout, the new policy will be if you can get there in an hour by train or no flight under an hour will be allowed if there's a train connection. So they'll just stop those routes. And that's something a federal government can do. So... Well, the climate crisis is leading to consequences all around the world. And for example, we're seeing intense droughts, storms, heat waves, rising sea levels, and more. 
and these events are impacting people's lives, their access to resources, and more. But climate change is also affecting specific industries in really direct ways, and that includes the tourism industry. So we've talked about how the tourism industry is contributing to the issue of climate change, but what are the main challenges that tourism in turn is facing from the effects of climate change? So climate change, it's not going to kill tourism, but it will transform it. And, and in Canada, you know, a number of people had their eyes opened what BC has gone through. We had a heat dome that, that most Canadians wouldn't have thought, and meteorologists as well, didn't think was possible in a Canadian context. We've seen that in the fires that came last summer. Headlines every year, you saw fires and people being evacuated in Greece off, off beaches, the floods in the you know, damage to cultural heritage in Germany. We saw, you know, Bahamas being slammed by a Category 5. Those Category 4 and 5 hurricanes are getting more frequent and that's what's projected under climate change. So there's a lot of those sort of extreme events that we see every year and tourism is impacted by those. One of the things tourism doesn't do particularly well is actually study to what extent they were impacted by those events and how different companies or different destinations responded and and who did well what are the lessons learned like we're not doing that sort of post post-mortem if you will on some of these extreme events and that's what's coming more frequently we do see also there are the more slow moving kind of climate change impacts so as one example in, in the u.s I have been asked by the media for many years, what's climate change doing to the ski season? And they're all eager to hear it's getting shorter. When I tell them, you know, for almost 20 years, I told them, well, it's not. The ski seasons are getting longer. And they're perplexed by that. And I said, well, the massive investment that they're making in snowmaking has been able to offset any of the warming that's coming so far. So from the 1980s to the 90s, seasons got longer. From the 90s to the 2000s, it got longer again. And then we saw the switch. So in the 2010s, across the five different regional markets in the U.S., the average ski season finally tipped backwards. So it's gotten shorter. So even with that massive investment in snowmaking, we're, we're seeing it's not able to keep up with the warming that we're seeing in the last decade. And we see the same sort of slow moving, whether you know it's beach erosion throughout the Caribbean, but it's really around the world. There are a few places where the beaches are accreting but by and large, you're seeing erosion as sea level rise do creep up. And the same shows up even in places like Venice. The flooding in, in San Marco Square is becoming more frequent. And you see pictures of tourists sitting and having their wine or their coffee and they're you know, almost knee deep in water. These things are you know right in your face at times. Whether certain governments acknowledge them or not is, is another issue. But these are the things we know will continue to happen when they reach a point where tourists don't want to go back that's sort of an open question in in some cases you know they're actually an attraction for like the the glaciers that have retreated even some of the alaska cruises said you know if you came and saw this region in the 1970s or 80s come see it again because it's a different place people are using that as an opportunity to learn about climate change see how the landscape has changed and so i guess there's some positive that comes of that yeah, from what you're describing, like I kind of get the sense that the way that people travel or the way that tourists like book 
will change a little bit because I mean, even as an example, last summer, we had considered going out to BC and decided against it because of the fires. Now we think, oh, maybe the better time to go to BC now is September, when there's less risk of fire and the weather is still nice. And similarly, people might start booking their skiing later into the winter now to adjust to these new norms. And that's something that the changes in the booking systems have allowed. They've allowed us over the last 20 years to really get closer and closer to the when do you plan to actually go and make those decisions last minute so that you can, whether it's checking the weather, what's the path on that hurricane, you know, what's the wildfire situation in Banff, because I do want to go and have a, you know, a campfire um, those sort of things. So that combination of of more real time sort of weather forecasting as well as a changed booking system is allowing those sort of last minute decisions to be made, which makes it more challenging for the for the tourism industry. But that's something they've adapted to. So now I think these sort of weather extremes happen with enough regularity in different parts of Canada or destinations that it is a bigger part of maybe people's decision making that it might have been sort of 10, 15 years ago, particularly when it's not just discomfort, because many people still go to Athens and Rome in the dead of summer when it's, it's ridiculously hot and humid. But when you've got wildfires and things like that, where whether it's air quality or personal health is at risk or what you can actually do is at risk, people pay a bit more attention to those kinds of things. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. And as we do, I want to ask you about what you think of the term sustainable travel. I think it's a very buzzy term, especially amongst like travel bloggers and travel communities online. What do you think of the term? Sustainable, you know, whether it's tourism for sustainable development or, or sustainable tourism, they kind of mean two different things. One's more about sustaining tourism and one's about what tourism can contribute to sustainable development for a community or a country. That's been a debate and sort of an ongoing use of those terms for 30 years, as long as I've been in in the game. I think there are a number of sort of aligned buzzwords that to me basically mean the same thing. So you've got responsible tourism, regenerative tourism is the new one. And and I have a hard time splitting hairs between some of these things that they're all about doing tourism doing better than it is in terms of the economic contributions to a community, the social connections it brings between travelers and and hosts and doing so sustainably or, you know, the environmental components, not leaving a big footprint or a mess for communities to deal with. So they're all talking about the same things. Let's do tourism better, both for the travelers, but for the host communities that will want you back. And, you know, there, there was prior to the pandemic, a lot of talk, a lot of use of the term over tourism. And then it rapidly switched to, we don't have enough people. (laughs) Makes tourism have to be a fairly nimble and adaptable industry. So we want to pick your brain a little bit about carbon emissions. We have touched on it in previous episodes, but I'm hoping you can give us a refresher just in case there's some new listeners around. Could you explain what the negative impacts of carbon in our ozone are? Yeah, so climate change or or carbon emissions and ozone problems are two separate problems. So carbon emissions and any other greenhouse gases, methane being one of the more, but water vapor is too. Those gases in the atmosphere trap 
for lack of a better word, but they re-radiate some of the heat that, that the planet Earth would, would release back into space. And you'll notice that, you know, if you have a cloudy night, that heat now doesn't get out, right? As compared to a clear night, like in the winter right now, if you have a clear night, it's cold. If you have cloud cover, it's not nearly as cold. Why? Because it's kind of creating that blank and it's re-radiating some of that heat back down and, and trapping it. That's what, you know, carbon dioxide does the same, has the same effect. So the more of that we put it, whether we put it there, whether volcanoes put it there, that warms the planet when if you put a sufficient amount of, of of co2 in the atmosphere and then that has generally positive feedbacks in that as you warm things up you have less snow and ice cover and that reflects energy back into space so you remove some of that more energy stays in the system again it, it melts permafrost that releases more co2 and methane so there's a whole bunch of these feedbacks so it's not just what humans are doing but that's a big part of it. it. It starts to create these sort of cascade of positive effects that can really change our climate. So that's that side of it. And then ozone, you know, we've had the ozone hole over Antarctica in time that, that we've been able to save and largely close that ozone hole so that the number of skin cancers in, in Australia and Chile and others are coming back down for the current generation, which is great to see. So that's actually a success story. Wow. With carbon, rapidly decarbonizing tourism is one of the challenges now that you've mentioned that tourism is facing. What does decarbonizing tourism mean? Like, how would we do it? And why do we need to work towards it? So as an example, what the tourism sector promised the world in, in its Glasgow um, protocol or Glasgow declaration, they said they would reduce their emissions 50% by 2030, and they would achieve net zero, which basically means zero emissions by 2050. Um, those are massive changes, one of them being eight years away, and the tourism emissions have done nothing but grow for as long as we've had any information on them. And so that's why people do raise eyebrows, is, is that actually doable? That being said, we absolutely have to look at how are we going to decarbonize, because the world will come asking the tourism sector to, whether it's sooner or later, but we will have to. And so that includes everything from more energy efficiency in, say, hotels, the vehicles that we use, the, the tour buses that we have, altering supply chains, even beverage and food choices can have a, a bigger or lesser carbon component to it. And then obviously the, those, those tra transportation, particularly flying, that's one of the tougher ones to, to decarbonize because we don't have a technology, um, ground-based transportation. If, if we want to take a private vehicle here in Ontario, we can buy an electric vehicle and our grid is primarily nuclear and hydro. So that's essentially no, you know, low carbon already. So if you're fueling your car with that, as opposed to fossil fuels, that's a big changeover. And the same would apply for tour buses. We can have a decarbonized holiday. Say if you were going to go back to Blue Mountain, they've got snowmaking and lifts all powered by a, a low carbon grid. If you have an electric vehicle, that kind of holiday is already compatible with a, a net zero future. Where we run into troubles is is what do we do with aviation? And right now, the two best options for that looking forward. So there are some niche markets like we talked about for electric aircraft, shorter, smaller numbers of people, but the big long haul ones, 
sustainable aviation fuels, the only one that really you know makes sense from a technical perspective is called synthetic fuels, where basically they're pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they can make different fuels out of that. So they can make kerosene for aircraft, they can make fuel for your car. So you don't put any new carbon in the atmosphere. You're basically taking it out, using it, and putting it back. <clears throat> That's That technology is proven. The problem is still cost and scale. We're able to create sort of a fraction of 1% of what the global aviation fleet would need. So there's a massive scaling job ahead of us in that. And Boeing and Airbus are looking at alternate propulsion systems. So they're looking at hydrogen as an alternate fuel. They're talking about prototypes, and then you'd have to change over the entire fleet. So that's a much longer term proposition that probably wouldn't be here for, for mid-century. Synthetic fuels, possibly, if we can get the economics and the scaling right. Otherwise, we're entirely reliant on offsetting for aviation, which is what the aviation sector is doing now. They're paying other sectors to reduce their emissions and then counting those credits. But that has limits, and eventually we're going to run out of those kind of offsets, particularly the cheap ones that the aviation sector is using right now. Yeah. Actually, it's funny you mentioned electric cars. The only international travel I've done in the pandemic was a few months ago when things were in a pretty good place with the pandemic. I went to Portugal and I had never rented an electric car before, but they had them available. So my friend and I took one and it was a fantastic experience. Yeah, especially if you don't have to go you know, too far in a given day. The hotel or wherever you're staying has got a charging station. You're ready to go the next morning. You've got your 400 or so whatever kilometers to go before you need it again. So yeah, that's where things are heading. And then same with tour buses and things like that. Even I'm working with Parks Canada a little bit on, on electrification strategy because they see this wave of electrified vehicles are coming. They're just not sure when, but they're going to have to plan for the infrastructure, get the money from Treasury Board, build it out because... People aren't going to want to park their electric, because Winnebago and other things have electric campers. They're not going to want to park that over in a parking lot. They're going to want to charge it on site and then trailheads off in the distance. How do you get power out there to get people home? So there's a number of logistics to be worked out, but the sooner they get on it, the better. Katie, as you know, travel for me doesn't always go according to plan. Oh, I am well aware. I have heard enough stories on this podcast to know that mishaps can happen when anyone travels. Absolutely. And when they do, you need travel insurance. And I couldn't recommend World Nomads more as your go-to. Travel insurance also protects the communities you visit. Some countries' medical systems have limited services and capability. World Nomads helps ensure that you don't become a burden on the local people and economy if you need medical help. Alpaca pals, you know this is music to my ears. World Nomads policies are simple and flexible. They cover over 150 adventure activities, including higher risk activities like scuba diving and trekking. Benefits limit, conditions and exclusions apply. Be sure to read your policy wording. Learn more and get your travel insurance quote at worldnomads.com. The link is in our show notes.
You mentioned carbon offsetting, and I'm curious your thought on this because I've read really varying takes on carbon offsetting flights, mainly on the side of the actual tourist. So sometimes the organizations that offer it are actually profiting and there's no way to verify where the funds are truly going. And then, of course, it's hard to measure the impact of a donation versus the very quantifiable carbon that's emitted when you fly. So I guess there's moral questions about whether paying to pollute makes people less likely to change their behavior. Do you think that like individual travelers should be paying to offset their flights? Yeah. So, I mean, ideally it wouldn't be an opt-in, which is how currently it's a, it's a voluntarily thing. Ideally we'd have a carbon price so that we would pay it. And those who are traveling first class would pay five times that carbon. And that would be used and invested cumulatively so that you could really make a difference because that would be a huge capital um, pool that would build up. Offsetting can be done well. It has to be what is called a gold standard and and has that name for a reason. It it is very verifiable. They typically avoid forest-based offsetting, which as we talked about, literally have gone up in smoke in certain places. In other cases, it's been dubious that somebody else has come along and cut down that same forest and then reforested it again as another (laughs) set of credits. So the European Union had actually done a good study on offsets and to see what kind of difference and and were they actually achieving. And it was basically a 50-50 proposition, the ones that were good and ones that weren't. So you really have to be careful who you use. There's a, a German company called Atmosphere who is really good. They typically invest in things like solar and things like that that are very transparent. They're actually putting money into some of that sin fuel you know, research and development as well. So if it's a gold standard offset, you're getting what you thought you were getting, which is removing carbon to reduce your personal footprint. But other ones, as you said, are sometimes, and, and particularly, you get what you pay for. Um, there are some really cheap ones out there. And, and unfortunately, that's what the the aviation sector through the Corsia program where they have to cap their emissions. They're planning to buy these $5 a ton, very cheap ones that the validity of those is open to question for sure. I love your point about the fact that airlines should be factoring this into ticket prices because I think one thing that's frustrating as an individual tourist is you feel like you have to make all these choices and actions when you travel to reduce your impact, which obviously like I'm very happy to make, but when you put it so simply, it just makes you wonder why isn't the industry just making this part and parcel of everyone's travel routine? Oh, absolutely. Because we all have friends, neighbors, family who climate is not on the front you know, burner of, of their attention cycle. So you, you need that kind of systematic change so that people who are making poor choices cli- from a climate perspective are still contributing to the solution in the same way those who are being very conscientious about it. And it should also be means-based so that somebody who's flying first class, they're paying four times sometimes or more what you are. But for every person in first class, you could... F- depending on the arrangement of the, of the aircraft, you can fit five to seven economy seats. So their carbon footprint is five to seven times what the economy passenger is. Their carbon foot or their carbon price should reflect that. And then the other thing we as travelers should all demand is 
is transparency. So when you buy a house, you know it's energy rating. You buy an appliance, you know it's energy rating. You buy a car, but you don't know that from your holidays. You don't know that for your flights. And Google has started putting some of that information on as best as they can. And if Google can do that, you know darn well the rest of the industry could do this if they chose to, but they're not doing carbon labeling. Um, and that's something that's a gap because well-intentioned consumers can't even make the right choice because they don't have the information for the flight. Hotels are getting a bit better with TripAdvisor and things like that, or getting green ratings and things like that that are a bit more meaningful. So it's coming, but it should be standard across the industry, not just, you know, individual players. And I love that suggestion because I think like the power of suggestion is really strong and the casual traveler who might not ever think about their climate impact when they travel, if they suddenly see that being included in like the flights that they're looking at or the hotels that they're looking at, it might start to factor into their decisions. And even if price or, or you know, certain star of hotel is the same, but one has a much better carbon or energy rating than the other, it's like, oh, okay, well, they're the same. I'll take that one all else being equal. And so then you begin to to promote and reward those who are doing the right thing from an right. operator perspective as well. Whether it's an aircraft or a hotel operator, you want to reward them for doing the right thing and take your business there. But right now, often you don't know, so you can't even reward them. Yeah. I know I find it pretty frustrating just because I do take steps to reduce my carbon footprint on an individual level, but it feels like those steps have such a minimal impact. And I know that what we really need is more government and corporate intervention. But on that note, how much impact do you think that individual tourists can actually have when it comes to reducing their impact when they travel? Like, are these small choices we're making actually helpful? If they're done collectively, absolutely. And I just give you one example. There was a, a survey in the UK, a public survey that gave people a, a number of different options in terms of how they could reduce their, their carbon footprint and then asked them, which ones are you doing? Which ones do you think make a difference? The majority had no idea what taking one last long haul return flight meant in terms of their carbon footprint. So in the UK, it was roughly the same emissions as if you put, if you switched from your normal engine car to taking public transit or cycling or walking to work. It's like putting the car away. It's that for the average person in the UK. And so they don't know that that scale. So it doesn't mean you have to never fly again. Although I have colleagues that don't, it means that's just one flight. So if your normal year is five long haul flights, if everybody does four instead, well, we've knocked off 20% of emissions from air travel. And I think we'll see some of that business travel is changing. And so that doesn't mean no business travel is going to happen. It doesn't mean you you there aren't certain meetings you have to have that face-to-face -face time. But if that's only two in two and ten, um, that's a huge difference in terms of travel budgets, travel costs, emissions, and then that begins to change what routes, how many aircraft are on routes. So, I fully agree with you. We need the the systematic change that government needs to drive so that people can't make poor decisions. 
But yes, individual decisions certainly do make a difference. And, and if we want to reward the good actors out there, those who are really doing their leaders on, on whether it's carbon or sustainability writ large, we want to take our business to them to show them that's the right business model and then others will follow. A couple years ago, I um, told my company that I work for that I wasn't going to do the short haul flight between the company was based in Montreal, so they would have me fly Toronto to Montreal. And I said, I don't want to fly, I'll take the train, so reimburse me for the train instead. And it got me thinking if more people in Toronto took that stance and said, I'm not going to take this Porter flight, I'm going to take the train, there would be less people on that flight and maybe they would change the schedules, they would be running that flight less. So sometimes I do think like, oh, we just need everyone to band together and make a point to skip those. Yeah, those no, no, that's, and that's where that collective action starts to happen, not just in tourism, but in other parts of our economy as well. But that's the case in point. You, you, for that one Porter flight not to go, you need 70 people to make the same decision. And then, as you said, improve the train service so that your connectivity is better. You're working comfortably as you're going in, in your downtown immediately. So you get some time savings. The train actually runs on time. You can come home on it. Those <laughs> yeah. are the things that Europeans <laughs> take for granted. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm scared for the answer to this question, but what will the future of tourism look like if climate change continues on its current trajectory without a lot of intervention? Well, I mean, climate change is going to transform tourism in the same way the the internet and, and our communications revolution did. Things will change. They, they have to, um, in part, as I said, with tourism being 5-8% of the, of the problem, it's not going to be left alone. That was, I think, the strategy that some of the airline executives and certainly tourism had for the last decade. But about five years ago, more of them realized that we're not going to get a pass. So they're going to come for us at some point. And when automobiles and other sectors are really struggling to reduce their emissions and they're looking across the economy and saying, but they're not doing anything, investors are going to demand it as well. One of the things that we're seeing that is changing, we have something called mandatory disclosure is coming for your emissions so that if you're a publicly traded company, you will have to disclose that to investors. So that's the G7 countries all agreed they want to see that become mandatory, not voluntary on the stock market. So those things are coming and tourism can't continue to grow as it has. Otherwise, it will increasingly, like in some countries like Norway, that's already decarbonizing well in other parts of the economy, tourism's share of that remaining carbon footprint is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think some of the leaders in tourism have really recognized there's some risk to being perceived as sort of a laggard or a dirty industry like tobacco was years ago. And you're seeing that with the flight shaming is just one sort of reaction amongst young people. And they're your next generation of customers and your next generation of employees. So young people really see what climate change means for them and they're demanding more accountability, more action. So emissions policy will change tourism whether like they like it or not. But in some ways, tourism will also benefit. So as more jurisdictions clean their grid, that makes tourism cleaner without tourism doing anything. 
And the same with the electrification of ground transport. That helps them reduce their emissions without them spending a dime. So if you green the grid and be advocates for some of those things that, that make society reduce its emissions better, that helps the tourism sector as well. So they have a place to have a voice in the tourism policy for most countries also has to take a look at, well, where do we market? Does it make sense to be for the Caribbean, for example, to be chasing the Chinese market? You know, they go to the climate conferences and they have a slogan called 1.5 to stay alive. And then at the same time, the tourism industry or sector goes and and tries to bring more Japanese and, and, and Chinese tourists from halfway around the world, increasing their carbon footprint of the tourism sector. So policymakers have to be, you know, have more well, coherent policy that links to the climate policy of the countries as well. You mentioned flight shaming. It's interesting you bring that up because a couple seasons ago, two seasons ago, we brought on an activist who doesn't fly. She gave up flying entirely to make a point about uh, flight shaming and just how impactful flying is in terms of carbon. And actually, like it was after talking to her that I personally decided I was going to try to avoid short haul flights because I felt like that was one thing I could do that was like not too messing too much with my like general travel plans. I mean, it brings up a question that I've personally grappled with and I think a lot of other people do too. And I know it's not easy to answer, but I'm curious your thoughts. In the travel blogging space, I've seen criticism over travel full stop as an unnecessary leisure activity that's just ultimately hurting the planet. The idea is that not traveling beyond your own region is the most climate friendly thing you can do. Um, So instead of like flying to destination, just stay close, close to home. Do you think this is an unfortunate truth? Or do you think that there is a way that we can responsibly strike a balance between travel and sustainability? That, that's certainly a, a dilemma. Those of us who are climate scientists, those of us who are tourism scholars that know the, you know, the footprint of, of tourism, we all struggle with and, and let me say like, so I'm a geographer, I do tourism studies. I know the benefits of tourism around the world and I, and I want people to see the wonders of the world to to interact with different cultures and different places the the importance that tourism has for biodiversity conservation we've seen as the pandemic has stopped people from going to certain places poaching increases almost immediately because the tourists aren't there and tourism has a huge both employment but in terms of total economic development and contribution to many, many countries, it's an important part of their sustainable development goals strategy. So if Europeans all stay home and North Americans all stay home and even outbound Chinese all stay home, there's a world of hurt that would come on small island nations, a lot of other parts of the world too, that you would have migration issues, you'd have unemployment, like you'd have a lot of other challenges to deal with too. So I'm hoping, like you, we can strike a balance. And it might not mean never doing long haul, but rather than, you know, the weekend in Vegas, that's a no to that one. The once in a lifetime trip to New Zealand, but you go there for months, six weeks and see all of it and, t- and take your time, engage with the communities and, and, and not go back every three years or whatever the case is for a week, you know, half a week. It's traveling differently, not traveling, not at all, especially in the near sort of 10 to 15 years, hoping that 
thereafter we get some of these technological solutions the synthetic fuels and that may raise the cost of travel but that that combined with a carbon price will help make everybody think well do i need to do, is this one i need is this a need to or a want to and make some of those decisions or help make some of those decisions so hopefully you get to the day where my two daughters can travel and see parts of the world that I hope they can, because those sort of those connections with all their other cultures are so important, I think. It's funny you bring up the point about the price of travel going up, because I've actually seen assessments that say, like airlines like Ryanair that were operating in Europe for very cheaply, you could fly for 20 euro to another country, that that was actually contributing to issues of over-tourism because it made travel almost too accessible to the degree that too many people were on these flights. Well, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, economists call it externalities, but those things were not built into those flights whatsoever, even just the carbon price. The other interesting thing that came from some of the studies of the discount airlines, but a colleague of mine, Stefan Gosling, has done a lot of studies on what he would call the hypermobile. So people who literally would take Ryanair or whatever every weekend, and they would spend a, a weekend in a different town, a different city, and, that, and they would have dinner at the one place. And so they would be traveling a ton. And, and he worked out that the the 1% of the world's population was responsible for, I wrote down the number, of 50% of the aviation emissions. So if you change the patterns of those people to become more consistent with even those of us who have meager means and, and travel like we do regularly, but not like that, that goes a long way of reducing the emissions so that your friend, you know, can have that one flight a year and choose to go where they want to. So it's about sending up systematic change that if, if you're hypermobile like that, you're putting a huge carbon footprint in the atmosphere. There has to be, we have to find a mechanism that you pay for that. You're paying for the offsets of that um, according to either means or certainly to the scale of your footprint. And that just doesn't exist right now. And that's one of the big shortcomings to those types of travel behaviors that we all kind of look at and go, is that what we, is that what we want to see our carbon used for? I mean, do you worry at all, though, about accessibility to travel? Because while like I'm very critical of these like very cheap flights that I mean, they're still available, but they do make travel more accessible to people who have less means. And if travel becomes more expensive in the future, because it becomes more green, will that mean that only people with money will have access to it? That's the tricky part of of policy that it can't be socially regressive to the point where the, you, you end up pricing out the family that wants to visit their family in India the once a decade type of thing. And so that's where if we can have policies that are means-based, but immediate policies like that are if you're flying first class and business class, you're paying five, seven times what the carbon price is back in and, and even maybe a surcharge on top of that because you know that's means tested. You're, you're not up there if you're saving up for five years for one flight. Um, and same with private aircraft into places like Aspen for skiing. When private aircraft arrive, there should be a surtax on that because you know it's a, a really carbon intensive way. There's a small group of people using a private aircraft showing up at your airport. You want to raise a pool of capital so that you can scale up the synthetic fuels that will help all of us travel more sustainably. 
that should be primarily paid by those who are hypermobile but who have the means. So it shouldn't be the family that's going to reunite after a pandemic um, with family the first time in three, five years. It should be means-based as best as possible. So before we wrap up, I wanted to know if you think that there are ways as individual tourists that we can do, we can reduce our impact, like meaningful ways that we can do it. So if you have any recommendations for, for people who would like to make changes. We've actually talked about a bunch of them. Like if you reduce your long haul travel, you don't have to eliminate it initially. One less flight a year. If you are going to fly, don't fly business class and, and, and first class as much as we all like the space. When you go, stay there longer. If you're going to go to New Zealand, maybe you make it the once a decade or once in a lifetime trip where you stay you know, several weeks. Those sort of things you can do. Then you can get outside the tourism sector, but even, you know, you can vote for climate leaders both in the tourism sector you know, that'll push that sort of systematic change that we need, changes to the grid, changes to the, the fuel systems. And then an important one for me is is let businesses who are doing well and, and our leaders in the field know, give them your business and to show others that that's the future of the business. So they too will have to change. So that's an important one. It, it may cost 5% more or something like that. But that's going to make the change. Um, when those businesses do well, other people take notice. So I'm trying to end this on a positive note. I actually read an article today that was criticizing climate nihilism, which is basically like, especially amongst young people, there's a sentiment that it's just the world is ending. There's nothing we can do. And this article was saying that's actually not true at all. And there are good things happening and we need to focus on that. And um not give up our efforts. So I wanted to ask what you think the good news is here. Um, in terms of tourism, do you think we're making positive progress and the future is looking better? Yeah, I, I'd start just by echoing your statement. That, <laughs> that I, As somebody who works in climate change research, it's tough on the mental health at times. But at the same time, defeatism is just as paralyzing as this climate denial. So Determined realism is probably the best path for people to go down. We are seeing changes. Like I said, in, in the Glasgow Declaration on Tourism, most of the signatories were actually SMEs, small, medium-sized enterprises. So that's really good to see there. So one of the things that we've seen with some governments is you flip-flop in the States. You saw that from one administration to another. And businesses don't know, well, if I put that big investment into sustainability or, or carbon reductions, am I going to get the payoff or is the next government going to come along and flip it on me? And that comes back to us as voters to send all parties have to have a consistent message on making things happen. So we do have tourism products already that are essentially net zero. You don't have to dream about that in the future. But what is that vision of tourism in a net zero economy in, in 30 years. Don't let defeatism be there because then people might think, well, there is no tourism economy in 30 years. You know, it just can't be. Well, no, there is. We just have to show what that vision is. And then more importantly, you know, what is the roadmap by how we get there? And we can say, well, there's no one path. What happens in Canada will be very different than in Europe. Now we all need to, as consumers, as operators, as policymakers, need to contribute to, okay, let's make that happen now. And, and that's, that's where I hope we get to within the next couple of years. 
I mean, I have to say I'm feeling more positive leaving this conversation than I did going into it just because like you've mentioned, even just in the last hour technology that I didn't even know existed. Like I didn't even know we were working towards planes that don't emit CO2 or recycle CO2. And knowing that that is a possibility gives me hope. Yeah, no, that's, there's the good technological solutions are coming. And one of the big things we really need is that ramp up of investment to make them happen sooner rather than later. If any of our listeners want to find you or look at resources, um, do you have any links you'd like to share? Yeah, well, if you Google my name or just tourism and climate change in my name, you'll you'll see a lot of the different publications I have. If anybody has questions, for sure, feel free to drop me an email and I'll get you the answers. Or if I can't answer it, I'll get you the resources that do answer it. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lohr. Do you want to support this podcast? If so, there are a few ways that you can. You can leave a review on your podcast app or show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. Bye.